Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your host in this episode of the Humanizing Narrative podcast. Our guest for this episode is Jeremy Starr. Jeremy enlisted in the Marine Corps in August of 2004. Private First Class Starr received orders as 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines after graduating from recruit training and completing School of Infantry West. He served as a gun team leader for 2-7's Weapons Company, 81's Platoon, for combat deployments to Fallujah, Iraq in 2005 and 2006. During his second tour in Fallujah, Jeremy was combat meritoriously promoted to the rank of corporal. In 2008, Jeremy left active duty and started his fire service career when he joined a paid on-call department in Sussex, Wisconsin. In November 2009, he was hired by the City of Milwaukee's Fire Department. He was initially assigned to Engine Company 32 and later transferred to Engine Company 24 and Rescue Company 2. Jeremy was promoted to Lieutenant in 2016 and served as a relief officer, lead cadet instructor for the department's fire academy and in field units. He was promoted to the rank of captain in 2020 and presently serves as the company commander for Engine Company 30. As a Marine, First Sergeant Starr presently serves with Engineer Services Company, CLB 25. He previously served with U.S. Marine Reserve units that included 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines, 3rd Civil Affairs Group in support of the Marine Special Operations Command, and has held several joint service and multinational billets. Jeremy, I greatly appreciate your willingness to be a guest on the All You Off podcast, and I'm confident that our listeners will benefit from your perspective, both as a warfighter and a fire officer. I'd like to start a conversation today by revisiting your enlistment into the U.S. Marines nearly 20 years ago. What exactly was the impetus for your enlistment? First, Jason, thanks again for uh, inviting me on here and giving the opportunity to just kind of have a good conversation with you and hopefully uh, providing some insight to some other listeners. So when I started thinking about doing the enlistment and I kind of looked at my current situation, I was not good in school at all. Barely passed my freshman year, barely passed my sophomore year. My home life was good because I had a, a great mom that kind of supported me, but she was a single mom. And with my educational maturity at the time, I don't think it was a smart choice for me to pursue the college option at that time. And so I started thinking about other things. The other thing that also happened during that time was 9-11. So that kind of pushed me towards thinking about the military and serving in a different capacity. And so when I started thinking about that, the first thing that came to mind was joining the army. Both my grandfathers were in the army, both during the Vietnam era, airborne. And then my other grandfather was, uh, he worked on uh, spotting trucks, ended up going over to Germany for a while time. So kind of a funny story is I went into the recruiting office thinking I am joining the army. Like this is it. I'm going to follow their footsteps. I'm going to keep the family tradition alive and join the army. Well, the way that the building set up is you walked in the front door and right in front of you, there was two doors. One was Marines office. The next one was the air force door, which they never had that open. Like it was like a by appointment only. Um, I never saw them. And then you turn to the right and that was the, uh, the Navy. And then the other side was the army. 
So I went in and I'm still a little hesitant because I hadn't talked to any recruiters. I'm trying to think what I wanted to do. And I just turned and I was like facing the army recruiter. And I, I preface this by saying, I love the army or uh, my brother in arms, but uh, obviously I'm biased towards the Marine Corps. Um, so I'm standing there and uh, I look down the hallway and I see this army recruiter in those ugly green uniforms that they had. And I'm like, all right. And then all of a sudden uh, to the right, I hear the Marine recruiter just kind of like get my attention. Hey, what you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about joining the military. He's like, well, you think about the Marines? I'm like, nope. And then I looked at him and he was in his dress blues at the time. I'm like, that dude looks sharp. And then I look back at the army. I'm like, that does not look sharp. Uh, so I made a hard right and walked into the Marines office. And uh, that kind of sealed the fate on which service I was going to go to. And then the recruiters I had at the time were all infantry officers, or excuse me, infantry uh, Marines, uh, one of them being recon. So that kind of added to why I went the infantry route. But I'll say the other thing that kind of stood out from that time with the uh, recruiters were the fact that like they started developing that like family mentality of the military from the get-go whether it was the like delayed entry program where we met up weekly and did PTs. Uh, we'd go to Applebee's, which is right at the end of the, the recruiting station and I'll go out and have meals with them. Like they'd come to our sporting events and like, it wasn't just like then, although you don't have the stigma of the recruiters, like they truly felt like family and they treated us as such to even our own family. So I give my recruiter a lot of credit because on my second deployment, my goddaughter was baptized and he actually stood in for me. Uh, so that just kind of shows he wasn't there just to get a, a number or check in the box. He legitimately was there for the long time. Just so a kinda, yeah, exactly. I, I was, it was actually a person, not just a number. It sounds like they had the competitive advantage in terms of terrain and obviously uniforms. Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You could, I mean, luckily the army has upgraded their uniform now that they look, look a lot better, but ironically it kind of, uh, emulates our uniforms now and when they went back to that world war ii era uniforms that they got um, those are but yeah those to their credit those uniforms are are sharp yeah absolutely absolutely all right so i'd like to fast forward to your, your fallujah experience as a young infantryman so you deployed to fallujah iraq as a young marine with second battalion seventh marines and i'd like for you to humanize your experience as a young infantryman in combat what were some of the lessons that you learned about life and more specifically leadership that has served you well in the years since? So I'd say with that, probably in the moment, I didn't realize a lot of the lessons that I was learning because I was just so young. My first deployment, I turned 19 overseas. And then my second deployment, I turned 21 while I was over there. So I was fairly young. I mean, when you think about that, you look through history, like our wars are being fought by like an average of 20 year olds. Yeah. Um, so the lessons I would say right out the get-go that I can remember like instantly that I remember from then that I learned was just like those hard knocks. Like you're not guaranteed the next day, right? You, you can't just, oh, well, we're just going to get through this. Like there's moments where I can think of talking to guys and the next minute they're gone. So those were like those instant things. Now I think fast forward of what I've learned over time, there's so many more lessons I actually laughed, Jason. I go back to when we first met back in 2011, you were developing the whole leadership under fire uh, concept, I would say, and doing your, that first presentation, I believe, at FDIC. And we were, we were going through your slide deck, what we were doing, because we were teaching that hands-on training class together. And there was a photo that popped up and it resonated with me then. 
and it still does today, um, but just a different environment. And you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong 100% on the verbiage, but how I remember it was someone out there wants to kill you, don't let them, complacency kills. And I relate that back to the fire service. And that's where I go like at like our training, right? When we were over there, when things happen, when you had contact, uh, you didn't rise to the occasion and all of a sudden you're this, this guy, you're this girl or whoever this hero is that you think you're gonna be, you fell to the highest level of training. And that's kind of been that like quote that's been around for a while, but it's a hundred percent true, right? Cause we trained a lot, but we were only able to train to the known unknowns. Like we knew, hey, we have to do contact drills for IEDs. We know we have to learn how to do counter ambushes. But we didn't know when those were going to happen or how those were happening. And then we got there and it was completely different of an environment than going in the backyard of 29 Palms and setting up things from a Comex box. And then now your boots on the ground in Fallujah. And then to that point, like my first deployment, especially, I was part of a map platoon or a mobile assault platoon. So we drove and did all our patrols mainly from a mobile aspect. And for my first deployment, I was a driver. And being a driver in Fallujah, as you can imagine, was probably not like you're strolling down to go to the beach, right? You're constantly looking, you're constantly on edge of every small little crack in the road, a pile of garbage, a dog with wires coming from it, kids throwing things, anything that was an abnormality. Um, so I kind of relate that back to like the LUF mindset. And one of the books that we've talked about in the past uh, is the Boyd, that Oodaloo. It was constant. Like, I didn't even know that concept then, but right. it was, it was, it was constant. You always had to continue to think, all right, Hey, if they're coming out, what are you doing? You have to be proactive in any thought. And then even more so something I didn't realize, I would say years later that we were doing, but because I was so young, I didn't understand it was the impacts of being in such a complex environment with very restricting ROEs. But then understanding those were restrictive because that every single action that I would have had multiple follow-on actions. You know, like I said, like you have kids throwing bottles at you. Well, let's say you engaged or you did something like that. That image could destroy an entire relationship that was built in that community. Uh, I mean, one single Marine, soldier, airman, Navy, any of that would be lost by one action. We've seen that through history in multiple wars, but just understanding that that's a big deal and a lot of weight to put on a 19 year old, a 20 year old at that time. But I would say some of the leadership side of things, I'd say the training that we did was great in the aspect as it really taught that decentralized command or that implicit control or in, implicit leadership, I should say. Because like, I know like you were a platoon commander um, my time then fast forwarding when I was a team leader, you know, you're making like snap decisions and you have to have and understand the intent of your platoon commander and then hire of what's going on and what your impacts are going to be. Cause you, like I said, you could destroy the momentum of a higher echelon because of your actions. And then furthermore, being a mobile platoon, let's say you being that platoon commander, you could be two city blocks ahead of where that rear vehicle is because of defer, dis, dispersion and they're having to make decisions that you can't control because of time and space. We just can't control those aspects that quickly that around comes down range. You have to have immediate action drills. And that's the same thing with like the fire service, right? Those, those things that 
we take those, hey, we have this, this has to happen, right? Those come very closely correlated when we put those two together. Um, but I'd say on my buildup, the thing I was blessed with the most was my staff NCOs, my officers, and my senior NCOs were all returning from like multiple deployments. Two seven from the time span of, and I want to say 2002 through roughly 2008, 2009 had been on five or six combat deployments. Uh, so the battalion as a whole was a very veteran deployment, right? If you've read the, uh, the book, I believe, Command Presence, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Latwell was written in there. He was our battalion commander uh, during that time frame. So he's a very savvy individual um, when it came to command elements at that time. And again, I was very young at that time, so I didn't understand and look to it through those lens at that time. But now looking back and understanding it, it I have much greater uh, appreciation for it. But now, like I said, going forward into my second deployment, now being a team leader, I'm leading patrols. I'm leading a team. I have individuals that now I'm in charge of and I flipped and now I'm in that that senior role. So it gives me a completely different lens and understanding that I had to take the time to teach these individuals what to do, how to react if I wasn't immediately there to give them that direct, hey, you have to do this now, right? Nor should we want that from not only our military personnel, but firefighters. They shouldn't want every time you need something done for them to turn and be like, hey, boss, what do you want, right? Or, hey, Sergeant, what do you need, right? That should be taught and understood. And I think that brings back to the point of like leadership in that time. The key part for me that I noticed that was most important was trust. Like if you didn't have trust amongst all of your team leaders, the squad leader, your Marine covering your six, all of that, like that was it. Because trust and being direct in what your actions are and being on, on time with what those things are, right? Because I said that time and space is a huge thing that you can't control. That's key. I look forward to, I don't know, after my deployment a little bit of being a JTAC, but still being in 81s where we did uh, call for fires. If you didn't have a trust when you're calling in fixed wing, rotary wing, indirect fires while an assaulting force is going forward and people aren't hitting time hacks, like that's death of Marines. That's, that's bad, right? So that element of trust, I think was absolutely critical to every aspect of what we were doing. And I'll give you an example of that was the first time that my patrol got hit. We were, we were a six, six vehicle convoy. I was the third vehicle. I was in the Upper Armament Humvee. We were just doing like a, I think it was like a laundry run to Camp Fallujah from our, our ECP that we were at. And uh, we're making our way back. So funny part of that is we're driving around and it was me and one other guy, the team leader. And we're jamming out to Outcast, the uh, Bombs Over Baghdad song while we're driving down the road <laughs> and uh and we're like singing it out doing our dance thing and all of a sudden like you hear the song we're like bombs over baghdad and then like the beat hits and right when the beat hits the vehicle behind us gets blown up i was like we're like dude was that was that the what was that <laughs> like was that the radio or what and then all of a sudden you hear contact 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 over the radio and all of a sudden it was like you you flipped a switch there's no more music there's no more good times it was go Right. And, but to see, and I go back to that trust thing of you didn't hear the platoon commander saying, Hey, Vic one, I need you to move here. Hey, you guys do this. It was instant. Vehicles got put in place. A vehicle was backed up to that Humvee. 
Tobar was established. Corman was getting up on the uh, turret and assessing the guy that got hit up in the turret. And we're moving that vehicle out of the X and then getting counter fires going as we're moving forward and getting out of that, that spot. Because at the time, we're in the main MSR in downtown Fallujah. And as you know, that's not really where I want to sit. So we had, we had to get out of there. And But just like I said, there was no like, hey, move this. It was just done. Like reaction drills were done. You had to do that stuff. So to see that and like now you implement that to but how many just to offer some context, yeah. how many dozens, if not hundreds of hours of of prep time? Oh prep time was in was invested in making that style of 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 a no huddle implicit offense possible. Yeah, I I mean hundreds. I mean, obviously I don't have an exact number, right? But I mean, that's easily hundreds of hours of, hey, go down. We're going out to, we're on our way to range 400 to do a nice uh, mortar shoot because we're at an 81th platoon. Hey, on the way, hey, vehicles down, react. All right. And it's in one of the, one of the teaching methods I, I would say almost live by is that crawl, walk, run. So it didn't sure. start out that, hey, where we were that day is how we started. It was, all right, hey, guys, we're going to stop. No stressors, no added anything. And you continue to work through that for, I would say, I mean, a pre-deployment workup at that time was probably, I don't know, eight months is, is short. And typically they're supposed to be a year, but I'd say they're, they're shortened around that time. Um, so for eight months, you're doing different contact drills. And then you have, I think at that time, I think it was called Mojave Viper at that time. That's when you kind of get your like qualifying execution from a battalion aspect and rating every single one of us all the way down where now you're actually getting the injects of stressors, the inject of, you know, blank fire or sim rounds, something like that to simulate actual taking contact. But yeah, that's not a, oh, we can just, this is how it's going to happen. Like we had to do. Well, the reason I mention it is because my experience has been that virtually everyone or many will tell you that that that's exactly the latitude they want afforded to them you know, in an operational environment, you know, they, they want to be able to exercise initiative at will. They would largely want, I wouldn't necessarily say a, a no huddle offense, but, a, mm -hmm. but they favor an implicit style of command and control over explicit. And they largely want a, a boss that's going to allow them to, to operate at, at will. The question though, or oftentimes the, the, the challenge or obstacle is that they're not willing to actually make the investment, mm -hmm. like the inordinate investment in terms of the, the number of hours that, that it takes to, to, to condition oneself or a unit to be able to function implicitly under, you know, under that level of, of pressure or, or distress. Absolutely. I mean, cause then there's not only the, the actionable piece of like, do this, but then there's, as you know, obviously we talk about a lot with LUF is the human side of it. Like, all right, I, I can't add in, how you're going to act. I can try to simulate what your response is going to be, but sure. that's only in training. Like once you get there, like that fight or flight or freeze mentality, like that's a moment thing. Like you can try to train it, but I, I feel like. Yeah. The physiological, the physiological piece is really hard to replicate in training. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, Certainly for yeah. people who are, who are experienced on any level, that's, that's really hard to replicate. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. In, in retrospect now, how valuable or invaluable was the Fallujah experience from an educational perspective? 
Oh, I mean, I, I don't even know how to really put that. There's so many aspects now that um, I had a journal that I wrote for my first deployment uh, that kind of like captured many of my like what, what we did on patrols and stuff like that, or just going through photos. I still stay in good contact with some of the guys that I deployed with and we'll talk about stories. So it brings back some of those memories. But I think one of the biggest things right out the get-go that I can say I can take take away from that was the ability to help control or maintain a level of calmness in a chaotic environment, you know, from, you know, VBIDs, small arm fires, any of that kind of things, like you can't just shut down and you can't just like turn it off. Like you have to try to, as much as possible, maintain that left to center and that center point, right? So you don't go right of center in that, and in that aspect. But I would say that was definitely something that was a huge and then also even not even from like a uh how would i put it tactical fashion but just also understanding cultures yeah um like that's like i really like i was in the infantry for over 10 years but i'd say my civil affairs time was key it really allowed me to learn and understand people i think civil affairs was uh, a great aspect because you went from my rounds down range are coming from a rifle as an infantryman to my effects on target are through my mind and my communication and interactions and being able to understand a culture is way more powerful than let me just put a weapon in your face. And that I think comes greatly over to the communities that we all work in, in the cities is you can't just come into work and be like, Oh, Hey, I'm a fireman here. And, and that's it you're invested in the city, you're understanding the cultures, the, the people that you're serving, because that's what we are. We're, we're serving those, those individuals. So um, that's the other thing I would say I would definitely take away from those experiences is you, you just have to understand people too. Yeah, that's great. Some great insight. One of the things that's interesting and almost like a, a timeless product of the, of the military is that you and I, very different paths to the Marine Corps. I wound up in the Marine Corps because I like school and wanted to get an education. You wound up in the Marine Corps because you didn't like school and you want to do something other than get an education. And arguably, like on the surface, here's this college-educated uh, Marine Corps officer, me, who had very little experience outside of a classroom. You enlist straight out of high school. You wind up in, in the Marine Corps in Fallujah at the age of 19, having not, not gotten, a, obviously, a college degree yet. And we wind up in the same leadership laboratory and are largely learning the same the same lessons about life and leadership that transcend rank arguably mos service and certainly formal education i, I mean i look back i mean i know you know this because we've talked about Fallujah on previous occasions but maybe not even in this detail but i i look back on my time there now even shortly after coming home, it wasn't lost on me that, that my experience there was, was beyond formative, transformative. And having the opportunity to lead and serve there at, at the time in which we were there while functioning under the tutelage of, of Jim Roussel, it's the greatest education that, that I've ever had access to. What a profound education it, it was. And I knew after coming home, and I was probably like a, a few years older than you and a little bit farther along in my Marine Corps journey, but I, I know shortly after getting home that that, that experience ha had changed me in profound ways as, as a leader and as a person. 
But man, I think now even with each year that passes in, in life, I, I gain an even greater appreciation for what an extraordinary experience as as shitty as it was, right? It's easy to look back and reflect on the, the parts that we enjoyed, but let's face it, that was a tough place. As tough as any that Marines from our generation have, have been, but pretty cool that both of us wound up in the same educational or leadership laboratory, despite the fact that we came from, from different backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think you hit on one point too, is just, uh, not only from a professional aspect that I, I feel I learned a lot, but the per personal side, I mean, there's extreme growth. It, it sounds cliche, but that first deployment took me from being that high school kid to what I would say is like 10 years for further in my maturity level of understanding not only life, but concepts. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was still a young Lance Corporal infantryman. We did dumb things, but just that mindset makes you grow up fast. Um, Cause you learn those, those hard knock life lessons fast. You see a lot of ugly. And so you appreciate more the things that you have when you come back home and those, those lessons of what you saw and what you now appreciate, you'll never forget those. Yeah, absolutely. And you spoke to the experience level at the time, the collective level of ex operational experience in the Marine Corps during, during those years was uh was truly something special and i would argue even the collective level of maturity i mean you had marines coming back from deployments that were 19 20 years of age such as yourself and you came back to the society you were you were truly men amongst boys i think in some ways the harsh insurgency that transpired from 2004 through 2007 in iraq and then really 2009 through 2012 or 13 in, in afghanistan it really accelerated personal and professional development for, for those who found themselves chewing dirt in Afghanistan or chewing pavement in Iraq during, during that season. You know, it's, 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 it's almost like now we look back and institutionally, you know, I know we're, we're, we're both many years removed in the Marine Corps, but you look back and it's like, sometimes I think like we, we kind of institutionally took it for granted. Like we just assumed that we were, we were going to spend the rest of our careers in a Marine Corps where everyone that we encountered have had as many combat deployments as, as us, and there were obviously guys and gals that did several more deployments than you and you and I did. But I think for we, we certainly probably to some extent took that for for granted. And how quickly it, it it seems like that operational experience, that collective experience, is is in much greater supply. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting now being still in obviously and being at the company level. How I remember going to trainings and like everyone put their hand up, hey, I got combat experience, right? And now there's Marines, like all servicemen, they're not even getting the national defense ribbon anymore because we're not considered that we're, that we're in a time of war. So how much that has changed that, what is the mindset of these individuals wanting to come into the service? Because it's not like, I mean, I think the last PFC Lance Corporal that I just joined weren't even alive when 9-11 happened. Like they 100% know about that whole war on terror from their history class in high school. And I think, I don't know if it's every generation, but I definitely feel like we always look at past military members as, oh, they were just the greats. They were this, right? But it, I don't know if you remember, I want to say this is probably like six years ago for the Marine Corps birthday ball message, but there was a World War II and Korea vet that came on. And this is like stuck with me forever when he said it. And that was kind of like, I'm like, wow, like, 
to be in their eyes and that level like that, that means something, but he made a comment. He's like, I would never want to have fought the war that the Iraq and Afghanistan Marines have fought. And when he said that, I was like, how, like you were through Iwo Jima, you were in the chills, like how in the world? But then he elaborated. He's like, I knew my enemy, right? Whereas the war that we fought, you didn't know. Like I, I remember there's times where I was talking to a guy for literally an hour straight uh, at a snap BCP. And then all of a sudden I hear over the radio in my ear, my platoon commander saying, hey, we got to lock this guy up. I'm like, what? Like this guy was just telling me about all his time he was in the U.S. Well, this guy was a huge IED maker. And he's sitting there just jaw jacking with me like we are right now. Yeah. And to like know that that was the environment that we were in compared to like this guy's saying, and we put them at such a high level, like they knew who their enemy was because they wore a uniform. Like that was, that was surreal. Yeah, it is. It is surreal. You know, because I, I think in our, our minds, and understandably so, the men of that era, Marines of that era, truly the greatest generation. But you spoke earlier to the, to the restraint and the discipline of, of the Marines, you know, more broadly service members who, who operated in places like Fallujah and Baghdad and Ramadi. And uh, really, uh, really remarkable, you know, given the level of, of restraint. There, you know, there were certainly a few mishaps here, here along, along mm-hmm. the way. But by and large, they were isolated events. And I think, uh, you know, this, this past year or two, I traveled around the Marine Corps and interviewed Marines who spent the final weeks in Afghanistan for the, the non-combatant evacuation, the largest in, in arguably the, the history of, of mankind, and the full of, of extraordinary restraint and discipline on the part of the infantry Marines from, from 2-1, the MU, remarkable. Who were some of the Marines... NCOs or staff NCOs who had a significant impact on your development during your time at 2-7, or I guess more importantly, what, what aspects of, of those Marines who, who you sought to emulate, what aspects of their leadership style did you seek to adopt and, and emulate going forward, both in the Marine Corps and, and beyond? Yeah, so the first one, obviously, I would say he's going to be one that's going to stick out because he's my first team leader. Right. So it was Mark Davis. Uh, he ended up going on after leaving 270. I ended up getting into Marshock. Always a guy that I, I held to a higher standard um, and held me to a higher standard. But the one thing I liked about him the most was he was real. And what I mean by that is so Sergeant Major Gary Smith kind of puts this thing in his book. He talks about the four ships of being a leader, leadership, mentorship, uh, relationships and and friendship. And I'd say Mark did every single one of those, right? Like because that. he created a relationship. Like we hung out together. We, we bonded together. If I needed something, it wasn't just like, hey, we're, we're tight. Like at work, we were friends, right? I could lean on him. It was a brother. It was, it was that to that level, right? And then mentorship, like he's part of the reason I would say that it helped me go even into the fire service because he was big into being a combat aidsman, which then got me interested in doing the medical side of things, which then kind of leads into like somewhat of where I'm at of, oh, I kind of like EMS, which I did not like, I preference an EMS meaning like SWAT EMS or like combat medic. Tactical EMS. EMS. Yeah, exactly, right. And then his leadership insight, he had already had some combat deployments in him and Sergeant Major breaks down that leadership aspect into like three different parts. 
He's like, there's the insight of being a leader is the ability to see what needs to be done. The hindsight, learning from your past experiences and then foresight. And that's him having the ability to know how to help me grow through his guidance. And he definitely hit those marks. And I think he set me up for being that team leader I was when I went on my second deployment. So he was great. The next one I would think of is actually, I would say a peer of mine, Alan Speaks. Speaks and I, we go all the way back to literally boot camp, like stood on the yellow footprints together. So I'll give you the funny story. So boot camp, you're going through all the morning rigmarole, all that kind of stuff. And obviously alphabet star speaks were right by each other. We didn't share the same rack, but he was right next to me. You wake up in the morning right away. You're like, dude, I got pissed, man. Like I got to go to the bathroom now. And I'm like, we're not going to, we don't have time. Like we're about to go to the range. We're in second phase. We're in that range time, getting ready to do the crucible. And I'm like, dude, we don't have time. Like drill instructor is going to be up us in a heartbeat. And I'm like, forget it. So I just grabbed canteen and all of a sudden I'm like, all right, dude, I'm doing it. So I go to the bathroom all of a sudden he turns, he's like, bro, can I get in that too? Like, I got to go now too. And I'm like, all right, fine. (laughs) I pass it off to him. He does his thing. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, where's that canteen? He's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, "Eh." I think we just, he's like, don't worry about it, bro. I got you. I'll get you another one by the end of the day. Magically, I had a completely different canteen by the end of the day, but it's like those small little like funny things you have in boot camp, right? That you laugh about, but like he followed me on and he kept me accountable throughout our whole entire time because we went from boot camp and then we went to the school of infantry together and then we both became mortarmen together and he was the one that I was always battling back and forth. Who's going to be the faster gunner? Who's going to be this? And I'll give him credit. He was pretty sharp. Like he had me out a lot of times. I had him here and there, but I give him credit where credit's due. Like he had me, but then even the next step of like our families got together. Like I was, I was there when his son was born. Um, his daughter was born a little bit after I got active duty and he stayed on a little bit, but like I knew his wife, like we'd go over there for dinners and we'd hang out. Like even still to this day, we talk every, we're able to talk every once in a while now, right now he's a, a police officer in, uh, in Idaho. Like he really like kept me going and like, made me understand that like you want to have that accountability person right those mentors in all areas and he was that personal and professional side that like kept me up and kept me moving forward to make sure that like I never let myself come down and like accept average or accept mediocrity right and always push that next level another person that I would say popped in my head is also uh my buddy David Carnes that guy was your typical infantry Marine. He was the one that you hated doing PT behind because he was probably drinking the entire night prior. And then we went for the PT run and you're just like wanting to vomit from his fumes while he's running past. (laughs) He's off guessing. Oh my gosh. It was horrible. But when it came down to like time to go, like he, it was go time. Right. I remember there, we had a patrol that I ended up filling in for the corn, the corpsman. We were giving him breaks. We only had one corpsman and for him to go on back to back to back patrols, we, we let him rest. So I was a combat aidsman. So I'm running the radio and, and uh, the med bag and we're pushing forward. We're, we're working on this patrol and all of a sudden we hear a sniper shot and like no one knows what's going on. But then all of a sudden you hear Carnes and he takes a smoke grenade off his chest. He pops the grenade kicks in the door to a house, clears the house, 
and then turns around and tells us, hey, I'm shot. Like, did you just, what just happened? Like, there was no like, hey, oh, I'm shot. Now let me just lay here and like, no, he knew he had, I got to get out of here because other people are probably going to be coming for me. Like, he moved, he cleared. And like, thank God he's still here today. I get it hit his sappy plate. Um, so he got banged up pretty good, but uh, obviously it saved his life. But his ability to just like, not only did he literally, but not just figuratively, get shot and get back up, but he continued to push through and get to the next mission that needed to be had. Because who knows what was in that house? Like he could have walked right into an ambush. He could have walked in anything and he didn't care. He was going to go through and complete the mission and then let everyone else know, hey, I need a little help over here. Um, so that that dude is, uh, he's definitely tough as nails. Every once in a while, he uh, comes and visits me out here in, in Green Bay and comes to a Packer game. Uh, he'll stop by down here in Milwaukee. So it's, it's always good seeing him. And then I'd say the one that helps me, especially when it comes to my mentality as an officer and a first art, was my first company first art. And that was first art Flegal. He retired out as fourth, uh, fourth Marine Division Sergeant Major. It's like three years ago, probably now. Um, and I actually had him come and be my guest speaker at uh, our ball this year. It was my first ball as a first round having to coordinate. I was very fortunate to have him. Uh, very artist. cool. Yeah. And the cool thing about that, too, is so as you understand with the reserves, there's an active first sergeant and he runs the I and I. And then there's the reserve first sergeant. So when I got assigned engineer service company, I'm getting off on tangible. I'll come back to the first sergeant legal here in a second. I call up the first sergeant. I'm hey, how you doing? This is. Uh, at the time, Gunnery Sergeant Star, First Sergeant Select, just want to introduce myself. And I'm running my mouth, just telling this dude all about me. And finally, I'm like, shut up. And I'm like, hey, I apologize. Like, tell me about yourself. And he's like, oh, yeah, no problem, man. Like, I started in 2007. And I go, stop. When? He's like, oh, I was there from 2003 to 2007. I go, stop. What company? He's like, weapons company. I go, no. No, no, no. What platoon were you in? He's like, oh, I was map. I think it was map one. I'm like, what is your name? He's like, Brian Lopez. I'm like, dude, you were my corporal when I joined the Marine Corps. Like the small world that we all came back. And now he's actually retiring here in a month. Um, but it was kind of cool that we were able to bring our combined first or my first first sergeant, but his company first sergeant and my company first sergeant from Fallujah to then be his last guest speaker at his ball. So I thought that was really cool. That first for, for his career to come full circle like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And he is he's awesome. He's I mean, even now, you know, he mentored me as a, a PSC and Lance Corporal to Corporal. Now he's mentoring me as a, a first sergeant to first sergeant, which is great. You know, you get that that full circle uh mentorship from a guy. But uh first sergeant Flegal was he was like I remember him being a Lance Corporal and you looked at him and you know how like even now, like when we get in our Charlies, the first thing you do is you like all right, let me see your stack, bro. Like, what do you got on there? What have you done? Like you size, you size up the Marines that you're by, like, right. You looked at him and you just didn't say anything. You're like, dude, are you brothers with Chesty? Like, <laughs> and he, I'm like, first round, I remember asking him like, first round, what did you do? And where were you? And he's like, Hey, I was just in the right place at the right time. I didn't do anything. <laughs> and he was just a very humble, like down to earth. Like I don't ever remember him personally. I'm not saying he didn't do it. He was but I don't remember him ever like raising his voice. Like I always felt like if I upset first aren't, it was like disappointing your parent. Sure. Like it, was, it was that type of like leadership style that he kind of put off that it was like he had 
that cool under fire mentality. Like, I don't ever remember him being that stereotypical knife hand throwing, yelling first arm. He was just cool, calm. And it wasn't things that we didn't do wrong. He corrected us and he kept us in line, but he just kept that mentality. And that's one thing that like, especially now being a first aren't is understanding like, that's how I want to try to act. Right. He, the way he treated his Marines, that's how I try to do with my Marines now. It's just like, give them that level of maturity. Like I don't need to be the yeller. Right. And, and to be honest, like as a first aren't, I shouldn't be the yeller. There's way too many other levels and NCOs and staff NCOs below that should be taking care of those things. And he made that, he made that very true in his, in his actions by instilling that in the lower ranks so that he could just be that point where if you needed anything, you knew he, he had you covered. So I would say those individuals are kind of the ones that pop up right away. Obviously there's definitely other ones, especially, I mean, if we get out of the two seven experience, I mean, I have a, a list of first sergeants and sergeant majors, especially, and even junior members, like being a gunny and I had a guy that was a sergeant that came in that I learned lots from him because rank doesn't mean that just because I have a high, you're a lower rank than me doesn't mean that I can't learn from you. Well, I, so would actually, I would actually even counter to say that if you are of a higher rank, you should have mentees that are mm-hmm. of lower rank than you, because it always goes back to that, like the, the mission men and me of understanding what's going on on the ground. Like my view from my level is here, but if I'm learning from, the guy that's still down there or the girl that's still down there, they're mentoring me and like, Hey, like, and you have that relationship where they can give you that candid answer. Hey, you're messed up in this. So you didn't think about this. Oh man, I appreciate that. Right. Um, so adding your, your influence of who your mentees are, or excuse me, your mentors, have them be like all ranges, higher ranks where you want to go, but then also the ones that are like those spot on senior firefighters or spot on HEOs, or, or engineers that we call them, right? The drivers um, or those junior Lance corporals, corporals, um, like you learn from from all the ranks. So yeah, I, I would say that for sure was what helped. I mean, and I would say first aren't legal, his interactions and the other action interactions I've had with some of the other sergeant majors, but I would say probably solely put on first aren't legal. He's the reason I went towards the first aren't route because he just left that sort of impression that I'm like, if I get to this point, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be like that. So. No, it's, it sounds like you've been, you've been blessed and you've had a number of mentors. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's unique and special about the Marine Corps, more times than not, the, the Marines that, that we served with, those Marines whose, whose charge we operated under and those Marines who were, uh, I, I guess, uh, subordinate to us, and rank of responsibility, by and large, most of the Marines that I've interacted with and served with are the types of people that I would, I would seek to emulate both in and out of uniform, you know, and I know sometimes as leaders we're we're heavily impacted by uh, probably just as much impacted by leaders who we uh, find mediocre or, or, or substandard. We, we come to a, a realization that we want to do things differently when afforded the opportunity as leaders, but when I reflect back on my time in the Marine Corps, and it sounds like it's similar to yours, by and large, man, I've, I've been blessed to have, have had some really good bosses along, along the way uh, and some just some really terrific people, both enlisted ranks and the officer ranks. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I mean, to that credit is I only talked about really the enlisted side. There's a number of officers that have that I stay in contact with now that have helped shape me into the staff NCO that I had. And because of their investment, as they looked at it, it's like the staff NCO or the first one is a senior enlisted advisor, right? But at the same time, I had, and I can think, you know, I give him credit now, uh, General Sean Day, um, when he was my commander at uh, Third Civil Affairs, he took the time out to invest in developing me as a staff NCO from his past staff NCOs that he saw. And I feel like a lot of that, I mean, like said, it, it goes both ways. I'm not just advising up, but I'm getting advised. And now I can take that and help my company commander that I have today and, and anyone else, honestly. Yeah, very cool. So I want to transition for a, a moment. And in 2008, your first enlistment comes to an end and you make the decision to leave the Marine Corps, at least for a short period of time. What was your what was your plan at the time? You know, what was your head in 2008 when you left the Marine Corps? When I was thinking about getting out in 2008, um, I was dating my wife at the time. And I was like, oh, you know, I think I think I want to get out. I might want to stay. I don't know. I don't know. And then I kind of just started forward thinking on what I want to do in life. Because um, the military at that time, we were just on constant rotations of combat deployments. And I'm like, well. I think I want to kind of like see this through with my girlfriend at the time. So maybe we'll just try, try another chapter. And I talked to first Sergeant Flegel and the company CEO. And he's like, Hey, you can always join the reserves, which I'm not gonna lie at that time. I had no intentions on joining the reserves. It was first. No interest. Civ, yeah. It was first civ div all the way. <laughs> right. But as I'm wait, making my way about to exit in the Marine Corps, I always wanted to be a cop my entire life. I always wanted to be a cop. I knew nothing about the fire service. I was never interested in the fire service. And as I was waiting, getting like, I'd say my last like eight months, there was a corporal that came in. He was my roommate at the time. And we started talking and he actually came back in the Marine Corps after having a 12 year time off of being a cop. And I'm like, oh man, you're a cop. Like, tell me what it's like. I want to go be a cop. And he's like, all he says to me, and I, and I love cops, put it that way, right? But he says, he's like, do you want to have a family? I go, yep. He's like, cool, go be a fireman. I'm like, what? I'm like, bro, you just killed my dreams. Like, no, I want to be. He's like, nope. He's like, just go be a fireman. Trust me. He's like, being a cop is awesome, but go be a fireman. I'm like, okay. So as I was on my way out, I, I figured, all right, I'll try to get ahead of the game. Went through California Fire Academy, which found out that did absolutely nothing for me. Coming to Milwaukee, I just repeated the academy again coming back to the States or coming back to Wisconsin. But I just started like pursuing police and fire. And at the time I actually have like a generational family in the Milwaukee fire department. So my great, my great uncle was on the job. And then my great grandpa was on the job also. So he was a motor pump operator. And then my uncle ended up retiring. It's gotta be like five, six years now uh, ago um as a lieutenant on the fire department but he let me when i was right before i got out he actually was able to get me a ride along which i guess at the time was not like a common thing and to be honest it's really not even that common now on on milwaukee to get ride alongs unless you're doing like uh ems teaching or something like that like we just don't do it that often but he ended up getting me a ride along so i'm like sweet so i was on leave and i go down and at the time 
he was working, he was a relief lieutenant out of, I think at the time that would have been the fourth battalion um, on engine 31, which is now a decommissioned engine. And I go in and he gets me a shirt. So right away, I'm like, oh man, I love it. I got, the, I got the shirt. Like, I feel like I'm part of the team with my blue jean Levi's that make me stand out like no other else. But then he starts showing me around the rig, showing me all the equipment, introducing me to the guys uh, that he's working with. And then I'm like, all right, cool. Like understand a little bit what the fire service is at. And then they call for meals. This guy, Don McKenzie was a cook that day. And he is, I mean, it's still his day. He's on the job. He's probably closer to retirement now, but phenomenal cook. Absolutely phenomenal cook. So I'm like, all right, so let's see. I got a shirt. I got to learn some stuff. And I just ate some awesome food. Like, these are all good things. We're trending in the right direction, right? And uh, and then all of a sudden, like, maybe a couple minutes later, we end up getting the first in fire, like, blocks away from the firehouse. Like, what are the chances? Like, I'm there that they get a first in fire. So we quick, I quick run on the rig. We go screaming down the block, show up. We got fire out the front of the house. Uh, and it just being a room in context fire. But like right then in that moment, I was like, sold, sold fire service. This is it. Like from just like understanding that like family mentality, like I, I just get to go out and do some, like, I didn't know the in-depth levels of the fire service. But I'm like, I just, they just did some really cool stuff. I want to go do that. Yeah. Right. So that kind of got me going through and starting my process of getting towards the fire service. And then I was just very fortunate to then be hired by Milwaukee uh, just a few years later. So let's see, you, you aspired to join the army, but wound up joining the Marine Corps and you aspired to become a cop, but wound up a fire, a fireman. Yeah. It's funny how sometimes you create your own path, but if you just shut up and take the ride, it'll put you in the right direction. Yeah, well said. So you enter the fire service. Uh, once you get to Wisconsin, uh, you first join a paid on call department. Uh, and then a short time later, you're hired by the Milwaukee Fire Department in 2009. You get assigned to Engine 32, which uh, they, they do some work, right? Yeah, at the time, I'd say it was probably the uh, second, third busiest engine company in the city at the time. So pretty good place to land Absolutely. as a probationary firefighter or more accurately uh, my understanding is in Milwaukee fire department vernacular a probationary firefighter is also officially known as a cub correct correct any idea what the, what the origins of of that are uh to be honest i don't know that's what they're called you asked the guys were just like shut up and accept it get back in the yeah center. exactly so I like, ask, right, well, what's life like as a cub in a good shop in the Milwaukee Fire Department. And then having been a, a boot PST in a Marine Corps uh, combat hardened infantry battalion, how does life as a cub compare or, or differ to being a boot PFC in a, in a Marine infantry battalion? So I would say there's a lot of similarities. Uh, one, you get in there and you're the guy cleaning the toilets, right? Just like you were as a PFC going to clean the smoke pit. But at the same time, I would say both, of those aspects is coming in as the probationer or that young PFC is you know enough to be dangerous. So it's just important for you to just get in there, shut up, be quiet, listen, and watch those seniors. I was very fortunate that at the time we were still a very senior department. And also with that half of the members, because I was in a dual company, so it was an engine and a truck, dual company, I'd say half of the members were service members 
I think uh, two army guys, a Marine, and then uh, an airman. So that like military-esque mentality was definitely instilled a little bit. But like, I would say the biggest difference was your level of responsibility didn't disappear as a cub, but it just lessened, right? Instead of me as a PFC, because right as Marines, we always teach, if you're a PFC, you're in charge of a predator. Like you are always in charge of someone. You have some level of responsibility. As the probationer, I wasn't in charge of anyone. I was in charge of making sure the mop got put out and I cleaned the floors, make sure the equipment was right. But I would say those responsibilities changed from a person thing to an equipment thing, right? It was my responsibility to make sure when I came in in the morning that the rig was checked out appropriately um, because it goes back to the company officer that I had. He was an army vet. And one of the things I take away from him was he was very like that trusting nature. He was very calm. Like, I don't ever remember him like second guessing me or kind of playing those games. It was like, I'll give you the the respect to think like you did what you said until you prove me wrong. Right. So I always try to make sure that I never put them in any of my crew in a situation that I did them wrong. Now that's not to say that I didn't have mistakes. Like that's a hundred percent wrong. Like that's what your probationary year is for. I almost feel is allows you an opportunity to make mistakes in a controlled ish fashion, as much as you can control it. If you get what I mean by that. But then you have seniors surrounding you that help you learn and go forward with that. I look at the probationers I have now. They may be fortunate or unfortunate that I'm very detailed on, hey, here's my five pages of expectations. And the expectations are actually only, they're not literally five pages, but it's very to the point. And the like, this is what I expect of you. And I kind of give them my priorities. Like as a as captain, I always tell my probation and my crew, like my priorities for the rig is that we have we're, we're readiness, relevancy, and ownership, right? At all times, we're going to be ready for any any runs that we get when we go out the door. We're going to be relevant in any situation we get into. And then we take ownership, good or bad, right? If we if we mess up, not we go back to the kitchen table, or for us, our our fireman's office in the back of the back of the firehouse, and we talk about what we did wrong. So the next time we go back out, we correct it, right? And I started actually giving a lot of my probationers a book. It's called The Game by Renick Sampson. I think that's how you pronounce his name. But it's like a senior firefighter. I think he's from the East Coast somewhere. And he kind of just like outlines the whys behind all the mannerisms that we all see after being in the fire service so long that the probationer has to play and like puts in the aspect of it's a game. Like, why can't you have a cell phone? Like now modern days, right? Because if you're on your cell phone, that means you're not learning. Right? If you're on your cell phone, that means that you're not taking the opportunity to ask questions and learn your craft, right? And that's just a small thing, but I, I wish I had something like that to have just understood that. But luckily that military experience of, I have earned my spot on the department, but I didn't earn my spot amongst the crew yet. That comes with time, right? I have to show them like they can trust me. I'm just this new guy that just, hey, you went to the academy. Like, great, cool. Everyone does that. But not everyone is a performer, right? Some people wash out after a couple of years, right? So I had to develop that with them. So, and then I was very fortunate that coming on there, we got a good amount of work. So it wasn't long after getting there that I was able to start start getting some some fires and actually like show like, all right, this guy can actually be depended on to fill his role, right? Because we kind of do the, if you're the cub, you're gonna you're gonna do this one piece for a little bit. And then once we see that, all right, now we'll give you the pipe. 
And now you can work this, right? And there's that stepping, that crawl, walk, run, right? So I was very fortunate to first learn the engine. And then because we're in a dual company, also get the time to then get over to the truck and learn from those truck guys. I mean, they had a lot of experience on that truck. And then, uh, as you know, uh, Eric Roden, he was the captain that I had at the time. Uh, so he obviously he's big on training. Um, so he also also kind of brought me in a little bit in showing me the ropes of seeing external training um, opportunities to help grow earlier. And credit to him because if he didn't do that, I probably wouldn't be here today with you, right? Because uh, that relationship I had with him was what then sparked my journey through FDIC, then into uh, leadership under fire, and then kind of doing all of that. So, and arguably back in the Marine Corps. Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. Because I'm sure if you if you ask that, bring that question up later, <laughs> uh, you are the sole purpose, in a way, of why I went back into the reserves. Which the best part will be when uh, when you air this podcast, my wife's probably going to call you and blame you for the fact that I'm gone for weeks at a time. For we'll, we'll redact we'll redact those remarks. The yeah, irony yeah. is the irony is in 2011, I somehow I go probably over several beers, uh, encouraged you to to rejoin the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, the, the irony is a year later, I find myself getting, getting kicked out of the, <laughs> yeah. the same, the same Marine Corps. So, yeah. uh, Oh, the, Oh, the irony, but, uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, pretty cool to play a small part in I'm your, sure. uh, in your return. So you mentioned Eric might ask who were some of the other firefighters and fire officers. You talked about the collective experience and seniority in the department at the time, but who were some of the other firefighters and fire officers who had a significant impact on your development, uh, both as a firefighter in your, in your early years and perhaps even as an officer in more recent years? And you know, along those lines, what, what traits and attributes have you tried to emulate as a, as a captain? Yeah, so I would say one of the ones that I think of would be uh, Mark Lipinski. His level of calmness that I saw, at least, was to a level that I never saw, right? And we had, there's many guys like that on our job, but obviously I had a direct relationship with him. I just never saw him one way or another get spooled up, whether at a fire in the firehouse, about the firehouse drama, like he was just even keel, right? You go to the fire and it was like he was just going through a walk in a park and all of a sudden he just stripped an entire roof. And whereas if I got up there, I'm like passing out, Right. So his ability to just maintain that level of calmness, I think is kind of goes to that, like whether he knew all the breathe work stuff that we teach about now or the left to center, right to center, like all, whether he knew that or not, he, he was doing that and showing that through his actions, right? Um, another one would be Craig Perillo. Craig has been uh, an influence in many aspects. One, because we instantly have the bond because he's a Marine vet. Two, he just was a, a guy that instantly he brings you in and he makes that family mentality. But also being such a influential young member, he was willing to teach. Like no matter what it was, if we were staying up late, if I had questions, like he was, yeah, we had the, the joking, joking and, and the working on, like that's expected. But uh, he was always willing to teach. Like, you know, hey, you want to go up the roof? All right, I got questions. All right, he'd take the time and do all of that. And to the point of like, I even gave him credit when I, uh, I want to say it was when I was promoted to captain that uh, 
I gave him a, sh a shout out. Like I did the whole, I love my family. love this. Right. And then I was like, and it goes back to like who your mentors are. Doesn't mean you have to always be a rank above. And I was like, and I want to thank Craig Perillo because the way that he guided me as a young firefighter, I also saw on his, to some levels, obviously you don't always see behind the curtain, but to some levels, how he also helped officers, uh, junior officers. And, and then his abilities to like mold an officer, like he had that influence, like he was that senior firefighter. He, he really lived that true. Then I kind of already mentioned uh, Tom Dammer. So I won't go, go further than him, but just his ability to allow us to have that independent thinking and early, um, whether it was just because he knew I was a, uh, a vet, but he, he put his trust out there quick and you either got it or you lost it, right? Mm -hmm. And then, I, I mean, honestly, the group that I had on that shift was absolutely big, great. Everyone had their own little piece that added to it, like my driver. Um, I called him like the mayor of the first in area. Like we went out on a run everyone knew him. like you drive down hey marv hey this one's like how do you know like dude like but the thing about that is then like every run that we went on to like we're going like as we know like 911 we're going to people's worst situation they don't call us just because they're having a party he could go anywhere and impact someone in a positive way every single time whether it was hey let me shovel your walk hey let me just move this over hey let me help this let me just give you some kind words like he always took the extra step to like, just be that human factor and just build the community. So he was great. Like I said, and, and I can go on against, like I said, again, each one of my, my senior firefighters on the rig who have great relationship again today, if those are ones kind of like instantly kind of pop out. And then like I said, and then you go on from that uh, leaving there and going on to the next steps, those people that added little pieces of attributes to how I feel like I act as a boss today, just continue to grow, right? Because I think that every interaction you have with a firefighter, with an officer, especially when you're wanting to be an officer, even if it's bad, you can learn from it, right? You can take something like, I don't ever want to do that, <laughs> right? That guy sure. was way off. That girl, she lost her, her cool way too quickly. So like I had a lot of informal mentors along the way and then also the actual like direct mentors like there's individuals that i purposely seek out and i think there's value to that of going up hey i want you to mentor me like and then putting that responsibility on them because then i kind of like in a side joke of that is like hey i just put that responsibility on you uh if i fail it's your fault not really but just putting that a little bit extra on them so that kind of goes off like i said especially from that if we keep it narrowed to that just that first year um, those are definitely some people that kind of stick out on that first year. What about beyond your first year then? You had the opportunity to transfer. You had the opportunity to work at a rescue company. Yeah. So going on, going on past that, I would say, again, my first crew, but two people that pop out the most to me, Brian McNulty. He's one of those of like, hey, I want you to be my mentor. Right. And again, one of those that like by no means was like, I perfect, but he held me a hundred percent accountable to all my positives and negatives. But then, then the follow on was, Hey, this is where you screwed up. All right, let's go over that. Let's drill that. Let's do this again. All right. Because I think he saw hopefully that I wanted to move on and get into the officer ranks. 
And hopefully that was why he did that a little bit extra to, to invest into me, but he definitely was insightful. And then also just like taking out from the operational standpoint, but watching how he develops a culture, right? And everyone can view the culture that was created good, bad, and different. I would say the culture that he created was definitely a positive culture. You know, it was tight knit. It was family. Like, so the first time, like that was the first firehouse that I went to where we had a Christmas party. We brought all the families into the firehouse, right? We had multiple outings as a crew where not only was the crew going out together, but then the families were getting together. Like my wife still says like some of her favorite firefighter wives were from that first crew that she still talks to today. And it was because of that culture that was created. Um, and now I take that as like something that I continue to work on, even as an officer now is trying to create those opportunities to create culture amongst the crews that I have so that those young firefighters or even the senior firefighters still have that close-knit family mentality. And then the other one was Danny Holdman. Very, very humble guy. Probably one of the most like humble, down-to-earth people I've met. Just a good-hearted, always cares about someone else, an extreme hard worker. He's done a lot of mentorship through me and of like the like don't always look at someone for their their first impression right maybe ask the question of like well why are they doing that were they taught it like you know they could be doing it wrong because no one ever taught them that. no one invested into them and he'd always take the time to like to just go to the hey give me the tool nope let me show you how to do it let me do this and he was always one of those learn one teach ones like I never, I never saw an, uh, an opportunity that he couldn't teach that he wouldn't seek it out to teach someone else something. So I think he definitely was uh, kind of put me in the spot that I'm at now where now I feel like I want to try to do that same thing. Like I've learned something. I want to hopefully pass it on. Right. Because if I just keep it, that doesn't go anywhere. Right. We, we want to move it on to the next generation. So we get better and better as we go. Very cool. Yeah. I certainly appreciate the, the generosity that you, you referenced with regards to several of those folks, a willingness to be generous with your time, knowledge, insight, experience. You mentioned culture and you, you presently serve as a company first sergeant in the Marine Corps. In essence, a senior enlisted advisor to a commander of a company-sized element of Marines. And then you also serve as a company commander for an engine company in the Milwaukee Fire Department. So I'd love for you to share some insight into the culture and climate that you endeavor to create in both units as it relates to leadership development and human performance. Yeah, so I think uh, culture has been one that has been something that is a, a study point for me right now because I think it can go in a lot of different ways. I can walk into the, the any of the company, whether it's Marine, Marine Corps, Engine Service Company, or Engine Company 30, and I could actually just, all right, hey, I'm sticking with status quo, not adjust anything. Or I can look at it like, hey, I need to add a little bit or completely create something different. And the thing about culture is, I think it comes from understanding people, right? Because when I think when you, when you want to affect a, a culture change, you got to look at who is the person that's going to do that. It may not be me, right? The person that maybe I need to change something for the better might be that senior firefighter, right? And creating a relationship with them that be like, hey, like, all right, we get, let's start going this direction. What do you think about that? 
and getting their insight, right? Because one thing I've, I feel like I've learned is the boss, just because you're the boss doesn't mean that you're the leader, right? You just have a title, right? That senior firefighter could really run that culture. So understanding that you get that, I don't want to call it buy-in, but that understanding and that relationship between those, like that's, that's key. Now, as a boss, the culture, I feel like I closely come to is very military, like in the, like, especially being a first run, right? Because as a first run, you kind of have, you're the keepers of tradition, right? You are the ones that you hold order. You keep the good order and discipline. You understand the rules and the regulations, all of those kind of, you're advising the the company commander, but more importantly, you're, you're also the one that's in charge of the morale, troop welfare, all of that kind of stuff. Cause you influence ultimately how things are going to go. Just, just because someone does something wrong, doesn't mean you need to throw the book at them. Right. Maybe it's a conversation. Now I think to that point is understanding even with the fire service, like, all right, Hey, this is what we have to do. But in this situation, that's why it's an SOG we have to flex and go this way, right? We need those guidelines. Like here's our parameters, but because of that, I need to go like that, right? And then understand that if someone does do that, you ask the questions before you put down the hammer, right? Understand that I, I kind of, I take the points away from boot camp When you hear your senior drill instructor give his first opening speech, right? He always tells you, you will be treated with firmness, fairness, compassion, and dignity by all of my drill instructors throughout your time, right? And I think that when you break that down, like that's what a company officer really should be like, hold you accountable, but be compassionate, right? Give that empathy and don't demean anyone, right? There's a level of dignity that should come with not only the position, but who the person is. So kind of getting back to your question of like creating a culture, I think the cultures that I try to portray, right? Because I think the culture comes out from my actions, right? Setting that example is as simple as almost as like a, a training environment, right? Like I've literally had it like where one of my old spots are like, well, we don't want to go over there because he trains too much. Like, I, I don't even know how that's a thing. Like he, and the other comment I heard was, well, he has too high of expectations. My expectations are for you to do the job and that is it. And furthermore, like the citizens and individuals that we're serving expect nothing less than that. I think, oh man, what was his name? He was at the uh, the Maryland conference. Uh, I think he was a sock roving lieutenant and you'll be able to fill it in when I hit it. But he made a comment that has lasted with me since the moment he said it. And he said, when someone calls 911 and we show up and we're not ready, we're not relevant, they can't hang up and call 912 and get someone else. Hilarious. I remember that. He was, he was absolutely hilarious. He was like, crawling and acting like he was putting out a fire oh, it was uh yeah tom captain tommy gordon yeah yeah like he said that and i was like that hits like you you can't just be like i don't like you go away let me get the next <laughs> group. right that has never left me since that moment when he said that and that's where i say like as a, especially as a company officer i mean like, i guess in theory the, ch the the chief officer standing in front of the fire building has the ability to do that in a yeah. department in an apartment rich in resources but yeah, yeah. John Q public, probably not, but uh, yeah. Yep. So like I said, just creating a culture that like, it's okay to learn. It's also okay to make mistakes and learn from them. Talk about them, be vulnerable, right? Vulnerability is key. Like as an officer, like we, we went to a fire the other day and 
I come back and we'll sit down and I'll talk whether it's on the way back to the firehouse and we're just having that, that cab talk. And I'll, I'll be almost one of the first ones to be like, oh man, I really missed this, right? I try to set the tone of like, let me tell you where I missed. So the guys in the back seat, the firefighters are like, oh man, like Cap's putting out that he missed some things. Like, that's okay. Like, I can say that I missed. Like, absolutely. Like, that's how we learn through our communication. Yeah, you raise an interesting point. Oftentimes, I think more so in the fire service than in the Marine Corps, there's a disconnect in how we think about performance, particularly mistakes in a training environment or an operational environment. And uh, we expect folks to kind of conduct themselves, particularly in an after action sense, in one way in a training environment. And, and then oftentimes the expectations kind of don't align with what we see on the back end of real world fires and emergencies. It's kind of, kind of interesting. We've covered a lot of ground today, and I'd actually like to close out the conversation by briefly exploring two things that I know are even more important to you than the fire service in the Marine Corps. One, your family, and two, your faith. You and your wife have three children under the age of five. You've got a lot of responsibility at home in addition to work, in addition to your Marine Corps company. What have you learned about leadership as a father, or how has it changed how you think about leadership? So one, I would say is out of all the things I've done, I, I know you're on your third right now. So you might be able to agree with me. And this is being a father is probably one of the most proudest things I have in my life. The firefighter, the Marine thing, like those are awesome. Right. I, I'm proud to have done that, but being a dad, being a father, absolutely my most favorite thing. Like I love, love being with kids. Um, but I'd say from that, one of the most, especially having three under five patience, 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 <laughs> right? And then the other side of that is I, I have a good conversation with uh, one of my good buddies, almost on a regular. And then now it's kind of carried into uh, an ongoing conversation I have with my wife is leadership through we'll say parenthood. But then I can push it over into the fire service and the military too, is modeling, right? Is modeling like for my, I have two boys and I have a daughter, right? Like my actions that I carry on a daily when they're around or even not around through, the, through things that they hear, through the things that they say, like I want to model the behaviors that I want them to grow into, right? Like I love, 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 love the mothers, props to the mothers. But I think we downplay a little bit the role that a father can, can have because ultimately for my sons, like, if I'm doing my, my responsibilities as a father correctly, I'm showing them what they should be as a husband, as a man, as a man of faith, of all of those things and what they should grow into, right? And then the flip side is also for my daughter is I'm creating the image of what she should look for, hopefully down the road and her spouse, right? And that she understands that like me showing love towards my wife, that's what she should look for, right? and not see some other ugly image and be like, oh, well, I saw this on TV. That's how, no, like, this is how my dad treat my mother. Like, that's what I want. Like, so there's a lot of responsibility with that. Like, I think that that's very, that was a very powerful thing that once I realized that I'm like, wow, it's a lot of weight on my shoulders. Like I got to be on point. And, and by no means is that ever a hundred percent of the time. And with that is there's times where Maybe I lose my cool too quickly with my kids because I'm in the middle of something. They're like, dad, let's do this, dad. And also I'm like, dude, just give me a minute. 
and all of a sudden I'd like take a second and reflect and be like, you know what? Sorry, buddy. Dad just lost his cool for I apologize. Right. And I was realizing like, it doesn't matter that he's three or five. Like he, like last night, my kids wanted me to do a Spider-Man puzzle with him, which by the way, a 400 piece Spider-Man puzzle with a five-year-old, that is something. <laughs> um, it's like, dude, we got to work the edges first. We got to work the edges first. No, I have this one piece that's like, that's in the middle of the puzzle. We're not there yet, but it's like, that, it's, those are the times they're going to remember. And then I flip that, like, how does that correlate over to or transfer over to the fire service and the military? Almost identical, right? As an officer or as a first sergeant, you're modeling the behaviors you want your junior members to be, right? If, you know, I use a simple exa example. If you go on an alarm sounding or some, we'll say the quote unquote mundane or routine calls that you get all the time. And you're that officer is like, wow, whatever, we're going to get there. It's going to be a false alarm and you're not fully packaged. And then all of a sudden you get caught with your pants down. What do you expect from the backseat, right? They're not going to be ready because you didn't set that example. And then furthermore, it goes down the road where they're now in that position. They're going to do exactly, well, now I'm an officer. I don't need to wear it because the guy in the back seats, he's ready. And I'll just get ready when I need to. Like, absolutely not, right? Sometimes you do the things you don't want to just because you know you have someone else that's watching, right? I know this is the rules. I think it's stupid. Doesn't matter, right? Goes back to MCDP one. If an order comes down, I may not agree with it. But once it's given to me, I take it as if it's my own and pass it back for pass it down, right? Same concept, right? There's things that come to us as a company officer we may not agree with may not like at all, but that's what it is, right? And, and you have your conversations in the off time with the correct people, but ultimately in the end, you have to stand your ground to a point and then understand when it's time to cut it and, and look forward best for the members um, going forward. But uh, I just go back to fatherhood and understanding now that like modeling mentality, that's what we need to do as as senior enlisted, as company officers, or even more so as those senior firefighters, right? I had a, when I did the LUF Lieutenant Charm School from Milwaukee that I had worked with you a little bit on, there was a firefighter, John Johnson, that I had good, good conversations with. And one of the things I realized from his conversation is as a boss in an engine company, I may be only getting 50% of that probationer's time, right? Because I don't get the time while I'm sitting in front and I'm reading the CAD or I'm thinking about operational things or I'm do, playing with the radio, talking with the driver, trying to figure all those kind of things out while that senior firefighter sitting in the back seat running that, that probationer through, hey, when we get there, this is what you're going to do. Hey, when we do this, think about that. Or when they're on the way back and they're just creating a bond, just, hey, tell me about your family. Tell you about this, right? That's one of the pieces I think that we sometimes forget as officers and senior enlisted that just because the uniform goes off doesn't mean that your leader role goes away, right? Um, something that I, I constantly try to work on, by no means am I perfect at, but it's just like the simple things of maybe you remember a guy's anniversary and you just call him up. Hey, I just want to say you, to you and wife, happy anniversary, right? Hey, it's your birthday. Like, don't let it be like, hey, I brought in steaks. It's my birthday. You be proactive and hit them up, right? Have those marks, like celebrate the person, right? Because if you only celebrate the 
role, they're going to realize that you're separate from the human aspect and you're just there for the job piece. Um, so I think that's important is understanding like you have to get into the actual person, remove the uniform and find out who they truly are. Uh, some really great insight. You nicely, so some powerful imagery there too, particularly when you talk about your roles and responsibilities as a father, raising both boys and, and girls or sons and a girl rather. And also, uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels between raising children at home and then developing Marines or, or firefighters at, at work. And I think oftentimes we're all guilty of, of treating the, the two endeavors separate, you know, and, and kind of metaphorically or adopting this mindset that says whatever happens at work stays at work, whatever happens at home stays at home, never shall it to meet. And if we're truly humanizing the narrative, as we like to say in, within the LUF team, it, it uh, requires us to think a little bit more, more deeply consistently recognize that at the end of the day, we're all, we're all humans. I'd like to f finish one, one final question. What role does your Christian faith play in your views as a leader in the Marine Corps, in the Milwaukee fire department and at home as a father and husband? Yeah. It, this kind of question in a way kind of came up at our E8 seminar in a way it was talking about, values versus ethical values and kind of put those together. And I would say that my faith a lot allows me to kind of like maintain those value-based decision-making um, because sometimes you're, you're faced with a decision that, well, this is what I could do. But then like, again, there's, there's the right answer and then there's the writer answer. And that's because like, sometimes as an officer, like we have that like term of you guys stick your neck out there. Well, why are you doing that? Like, are you doing it because you truly value and you like morally sound decisions of what that either you're doing, they did, and then just kind of covering down on that. But I, I guess I just go back to like my values and faith and my have formed my values in life, which is allowing me to make better decisions on how I'm making my actions as an officer, uh, as a father and prioritizing furthermore, how I do things, right, is we have to always understand, like, all right, what comes first, right? Like, for me, I always have my values are faith, family, honor, and integrity, right? You know, my faith, you know, look at my calendars, like, all right, am I doing things that are proactive in my faith? Am I putting my family first? And obviously, there's some, like, hey, I got to go to work, got to pay the bills. But, like, am I putting the extras before my family? And if the answer to that is yes, then I have to re-evaluate re that. But then I'd say the other thing from my faith that one of probably one of my, I would say not necessarily favorite, but definitely up there um, is passages is Proverbs 11 too, when it says, when pride comes, comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And hmm. the reason I like that so much is that when you break that down to the level of, and I'll use the fire service for example, it reminds you to always be humble, Right understand that like if I'm going out to train someone or we're going out to a training event, whether I'm giving it or I'm getting it, I always need to maintain a student mindset for the profession that we're in because I don't know it all. And if I start thinking, well, like I got it all and need this, that's when I'm going to do something stupid, right? I may be training the probation or learning something different along the way, but ultimately I'm growing, right? I like how Back in the day, Jerry Smith got me uh, lined in with the uh, fire journals. And so I, I, I mean, if you 
if, when Jerry, if he hears this, he's probably gonna be mad at me because like by no means am I awesome at doing those, but I try to do this as much as I can. Uh, and I push, try to like put that on my probationers for them to do it too. But I think the thing about that is it humbles me and it goes back to what I talked about before of I'm very, try to be very critical of my mistakes. Like go to a fire, like we had one the other day and it was kind of an awkward layout of a house. And afterwards I told the guys, I'm like, Hey, I apologize. They're like, what? And I'm like, you know what? I did not do a good, good 360. I just kind of peeked my head around that side of that building. I didn't really get a good look at where those stairs were. And it kind of threw us off a little bit. I'm like, that's on me. Right. And it may be something small, but it's like, remember, like I, I'm, if I humble myself down to learn from my mistakes, that's where I'll grow. And it kind of puts it forth with them. So that's where I'd say like my faith really pulls a, a piece into that is just keeping yourself humble. Thank you for that. So I said final question, but I do have one final save round and we'll, and we'll close here. We're not leading Marines, training firefighters, raising your kids. I know that you're a voracious reader, one or two all-time favorite, favorite books. And then perhaps even a, a few words of encouragement for other people who are uh, living a, a pretty active life like yourself in terms of how you, how you make time or find time to read. Yeah. So I'd say, obviously a big fan of a lot of the books that we, we put out through the LUF. Um, but I'd say one, I like, especially when it comes to that, like senior firefighter or junior officer role called the non-commissioned officer, petty officer backbone of the armed forces. It's a book that kind of just, it talks about what the NCO and the petty officer are in the armed forces. And that goes very, very closely to um, what a senior firefighter is like junior officer role of really showing like how do you add value to the the company right you, you're gonna add value right again that like you don't have to be the leader to be the leader right but that book is phenomenal um love that another one i really like uh james Kerr, i think kerr i think it is it's called legacy it's about leadership lessons from the new zealand all blacks the rugby team very good book just remembering that just because you're in a, you're in that position doesn't mean that it negates you from other pieces right like sometimes when i'm doing my mentored acting with my probationer and now i'm the firefighter i'll try to beat the probationer like i did the other day i, I had two probationers so i had my senior firefighter acting lieutenant while I was sitting in the back seat and now i'm like running around trying to chase my probation around to try to go clean the toilets before he would um like you can like you're not above those kind of things and that kind of just talks about a little bit on those and then I'll say, I'll say with that is, you'll know, other plug I'll put is, I'm a big fan of the end of the uh, Simon Sinek, I think is his last name, how you pronounce his last name. They'll like start with the wise, the leaders, leaders eat last. Those are uh, great examples. And then like, how do I try to find the time? Routines. Uh, either I'm like, my wife is a night person. She could stay up till 11, but then she wants to sleep probably in if she could till like eight or nine. Whereas I'm just the opposite. Like if I get in bed by like eight 30, nine o'clock, I'm a happy person, but then I want to get up at like four 35 and I can, and get things done. Right. Plus the house is normally a little quieter. So then I can try to get it in there. Otherwise, like another way I've found, uh, especially when things are getting really chaotic with super young kids was audios. I'll listen to audio books uh, a lot. Um, whether I'm rocking my daughter asleep, listen to an audio book. And then if the audio book like kind of hits me to the point, I'm like, that is a solid book. I'll buy the book 
and then go back and start doing all my highlighting and all the things that I liked about it. And then two, like probably one of the, uh, the easier ones for me is when the kids want to do the bedtime, let's watch a movie before I've seen frozen way too many times. I don't mean to watch it for the hundredth time. So although I'm present with them and sure. watching the movie, I'm reading my book just to get it, get a little bit in. Uh, Cause I, I, I've seen the show and all the other Disney shows way too many times. I think I can start uh, repeating some of those. So I'm going to adopt that strategy. I've, yeah. I've seen it a few times too. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. We're probably watching it here in a few hours. Yeah. Yep. Well, what's beautiful about the conversation that we just had is early on in the conversation, you shared that you joined the Marine Corps because you were largely running from, from school and, and education. And the great irony is that you finished the conversation today with me, encouraging listeners to, to read some, some books that I would argue are educational in, in, in nature. Uh, but I want to thank you for your, for your generosity and your time today. I know you have a lot of things competing for your time. And I, I'm confident that our listening audience will appreciate your, your insight and the encouragement that you shared, your willingness to reflect on your, your time in Fallujah, your career to date in the Milwaukee Fire Department, and your efforts, your, your very active and diligent efforts to develop leaders both in the Marine Corps and in the Fire Department, in the Milwaukee Fire Department. So appreciate your time today and everything that you, uh, you continue to do, Jerry. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for the time and uh, the great conversation. It's always good uh, connecting up with you again. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.